Uh, I want to begin with a quote there by um, Henry Blackaby and Claude V. King, and they're both experiencing God. And they said this, when you obey God, he will accomplish through you what he has purposed to do. When God does something through your life that only he can do, you will come to know him more intimately. If you do not obey, you will miss out on some of the most exciting experiences of your life. Anybody say amen to that? That's for sure. Today's message is not so much about money, but about obedience and priority. Will we be talking about money? Absolutely we will. Does money have an influence over our lives? It most certainly does. Let me give you an example. On August 24th, AD 79, a volcano erupted, Mount Vesuvius. You may have read my travel log, and you'll remember this story. But when I had a chance to go to a city of Pompeii, I saw the impacts that Mount Vesuvius had on it and its sister city of Herculaneum. It exploded out these noxious fumes. It fired out ash and pumice, and it began to rain down upon these two cities. These were wealthy cities, kind of like summer retreat homes. So it carried a lot of their wealth there. It's a pretty fancy city, and there was a lot of people there. As a matter of fact, my brother and I, as we were traveling through the ruins of Pompeii, we traveled for about three and a half, four hours, and we didn't see it all. It's massive. It's a huge city. As we walked around, we got to see AD 79 frozen in time, Paul's day, seeing what the streets looked like, seeing what the signs would be like, the mosaics on the wall, the frescoes, the paintings, and learn a little bit about it. You know, it was pretty fascinating to see this stuff. But when they uncovered it 1,700 years after the eruption, and they're still uncovering some of it now, When they uncovered it 1,700 years later, they found thousands of bodies entombed in the ash and pumice. As you're walking around this city, most of all the things from the city have been moved to a museum in Naples. It's in, that's south of France, uh, south of uh, Rome. And we didn't get a chance to go into the museum, so we're walking around and we started seeing these plexiglass cases. In these plexiglass cases were people. Now, I don't know if they're plaster casts of the people or if they were actually the people that were mummified. I have no idea. But these people were frozen and you could see their facial expressions. You could see their mouths open. You could see their eyes. And growing up as a kid, I always wondered how this happened. I thought, were they like running and just got frozen or what in the world happened? How did that happen? Was it the lava? No, that would have burned them. How did it happen? I couldn't figure this stuff out. And even looking at them, I couldn't sort it out. How did these people get buried like this? So we didn't have a tour guide, so we're walking around trying to piece this stuff together. And I happened to stop by one tour guide talking to some people right over a plexiglass case of a body. And I kind of eavesdropped in. And he said, the girl asked him, so what happened to these people? Why are they here like this? And he said, well, let me tell you some interesting facts. He said, do you realize that we unearth thousands of bodies? Now, in a big, big city, that's not a lot of people, but still, thousands of people is a pretty big deal. We uncovered thousands of bodies, yet we uncovered one dog that was chained up and three donkeys. How is it possible that a city of this size only had four animals? 
Where'd all the animals go? They all bailed out. He said, do you realize that everybody could have got out? But not everybody did. Now, he said the next portion as a fact, but I'm going to tell you it's probably his hypothesis because he's guessing he wasn't there. He said, in every case where we found bodies, there were riches nearby. Which means one of two things. Either the people remained to protect their money, or they came back into the city to either loot it or stop people from stealing it. The bottom line is, they died protecting their stuff. What was interesting for me, kind of reliving that childhood memory, is going, you know what, they could have got out and they chose not to. They had to remain in that city under all that stuff, because the noxious fumes, we realize that even in the eruption of Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington, that it releases this toxic fumes, and if you breathe that stuff in, you asphyxiate to death. But they could have got out, and they didn't. Would someone really give up their life for money? You better believe it. It happens all the time. We just finished with the Thanksgiving season. Do you feel less greedy? Do you feel more thankful? I pretty much feel like I stretched my stomach and now I need more food to place in the big gaping hole that I've created. I mean, it's basically the season of gluttony for me. All right? Do I feel less greedy coming out of a Thanksgiving? God, thank you for giving me all these things that you gave me. No, as a matter of fact... This last week, during the Thanksgiving season, I felt a feeling that I haven't felt before, at least for a long time. You see, I have an awful lot of struggles in my life, but greed isn't one of them. But boy, I felt it this last week. came out of nowhere, totally blindsided me. I was talking with somebody about an issue of money, and somehow I was, and I was involved in the money issue, and based on the information they're telling me, I found myself reacting to it on an emotional level of greed. And it absolutely freaked me out. Because that's not something I wrestle with. And then it was gone, but I noticed it. And I went, oh my gosh, am I a monster? Where in the world did that come from? That's not what I struggle with, dang it. I struggle with other stuff. I don't need to struggle with this too. And I looked in and I thought, well, wait a second. Maybe I've always struggled with greed, but because I've always been blessed throughout my life, maybe I've never been challenged in that area. Maybe I really do have a problem with this stuff. And the answer is, I don't know. But I do believe that money has an amazing power and ability to manipulate us. An amazing ability to consume us. And God talks an awful lot about the issue of money. He talks about where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That is an issue of resources. Where you pour your resources, whether it be time, money, energy, it shows what you value. As I look in this story we're about to read, we're at one of the most selfish, greediest points of Israel's history. And God is about to take them to task for the beliefs and feelings that they were living out. But I need you to understand, this is about obedience and priorities. Can't understand it without the background. You remember, Israel has just come out of captivity into a desolate land. 
They're completely wondering if God cares, if He's the same. Has He changed? What's He like? He's not blessing me anymore. And God said, no, I'm not blessing you anymore. You're under discipline. I'm chastising you. I'm trying to give you a spiritual spanking. That's the point. I'm trying to correct you, and you're not learning. So we're going to remain under this cursed state until we get it right. But in that, they didn't want to stay under the, under the challenge or chastising of God. And they kept being disobedient. And there were certain areas God had to take him to task for. Last week, we talked about him taking the leadership to task. Do you remember that? He said, I will purify the Levites. I will purify the priestly workers. I will hold them accountable. And I will come with a raging fire to purify them. You can imagine they would have got pretty frustrated. All right, you take me to task, but we can't do our job if they're not doing their job. If the community is not supporting us, we cannot minister. And God said, hold on, I'll get to them. Right now I'm talking to you. Today he gets to everybody else. But lest we miss the heart of the message, I put a fill in the blank on your page in front of you. And I want you to fill it in with me right now. It is this. Obedience leads to intimacy with God. Obedience leads to intimacy with God. I'm harping on this concept because the passage we're about to study has launched bogus theology for thousands of years. It has created confusion for many. It's created debates for most. And I hope that you're going to leave this morning a little bit more clear. Would you turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, page 676. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Page 676 in the Bible is handed out to you. We're only covering chapter, verses 6 through 12, a real small passage today. So I'm going to read it to you and then we'll pray for the word and then I'll explain it and tear it apart for you. Are you all with me? Here we go. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes to spiritually discern what it is that you want us to know? what it is that we must understand, and then give us the power to do something with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, the Lord, do not change. What does that kind of presuppose? It presupposes that people were thinking that God changes. Yeah? That's kind of obvious. 
God, you've totally changed. I mean, what happened to the whole parting the Red Sea, bringing about the blessing, dropping down the manna, bringing the quail in the desert? Where's that God? You've obviously changed. You used to bless Israel under the monarchy, under Saul, David, Solomon. We were at a height of the pinnacle of our power. What happened to that God? Clearly you've changed. You're not the covenant God that you used to be. You're not fulfilling your promises. What was his response? No, I don't change. And you want to know how I can prove it? I didn't kill you and wipe you off the face of the earth. Next phrase. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. No, clearly I am the God of the covenant because you're still here to complain. So have I completely obliterated you and taken you off the map? Then we can talk about changing. But right now, I have shown you, if someone stands against me like Edom... I wiped them off the face of the earth, but you, I did not. So obviously I'm not changing. Obviously I'm sticking straight to what I told you in the beginning and I am faithful to my covenant. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Is he exaggerating or serious? Oh, yeah, he's pretty darn serious. Have you ever read the book of Judges and all this Old Testament stuff? It's like one rebellion after another. And then they turned back to the Lord and then they fell away from the Lord. And then they turned back to the Lord and fell away from the Lord. He said, you have constantly violated my covenant since the beginning. It's like right when I started out with you, you keep going away from me. You walk away from me at every possible chance. And yet here we are still today talking. Obviously, I am gracious and forgiving and compassionate. Return to me and I will return to you. That phrase in Hebrew means go back to the point of departure. Wherever you deviated, go back there. In other words, when you guys stop following my covenant, go back to that exact point and then we can pick up again. And if you return to me, it's the same word that we use for repentance. If you return to me, I will then go back to the point when I deviated from blessing you. I'll go right back to that point. I'll pick up with a blessing and we can move on. He's giving them a clear out going, if you don't like your circumstances change return to me and i will return to you says the lord almighty but you ask how are we to return now i don't know if they really didn't know and they're just pretending or whether or not they really didn't know he said well let me give you an exact example well the man robbed god now that word rob in hebrew is a very rare term they don't actually know what it means they just know the root word where it's coming from it means to cover for the purpose of defrauding someone. In other words, you're hiding something on somebody so you can get something from them. You're ripping them off monetarily by covering up. We all following this? He's thinking, wait a second, if you rip each other off, I get really mad. What's going to happen if you rip me off? Will a man rob God? The point is, no way. No one would dare to do that. Yet you rob me. That's a serious accusation. But you ask, how did we rob you? So I'll tell you very clearly, in tithes and offerings. That's how you're ripping me off. What are tithes and offerings? Well, I'm not here to give you a full treatise on the answer here, but let me give you some background. How long have tithes and offerings, or the idea of offering back to the Lord, been around? From the dawn of creation, you remember the first two, the first man and woman were Adam and Eve, and their kids were named Cain and Abel. 
Cain and Abel brought an offering up to God and it didn't go so hot for one of them. Do you remember? Abel brought, he took it seriously and brought what God desired. Cain didn't take it seriously, brought what was not desirable to the Lord. God rejected his offering. He got mad and bitter and turned around and killed his brother. You guys following the story? So from the dawn of creation, we've had this concept of bringing a portion of what we receive from the Lord back to him. Well, then as you course down through, we get to Abraham and it starts getting a little bit more formalized or we start getting titles for it. Abraham, the father of all the Jewish nation by which all Jews have descended. Abraham goes out on a military campaign, has success and victory, has spoils from war, comes rolling back into town and comes face to face with the king of Salem. He's kind of a Christ type figure by the name of Melchizedek. Abraham, in honor of God, said, because of the victory I received, I want to give a tenth of my spoils to the Lord. And that's the first time we began to start seeing the word tithe. It means tenth. He spin down to his grandson, Jacob. Jacob said, Lord, if you give me safety and victory and allow me to return to this land peacefully, I will give you a tenth, a tithe of what I have. By the time we hit Moses, it's been codified into law. God expected tithes, tenths from the people. As a matter of fact, they had multiple tithes. The Jewish people once a year were to bring 10% of all their produce. Now, this is an agricultural culture. So we're not talking necessarily cash. We're talking about livestock and grain and stuff like that. There's wine offerings, there was this, blah, 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 goes back and forth. He said, I want you to bring 10% of all that you gained in this year, and I want you to bring it to my temple. It's going to be a lot, so we built extra rooms in the temple called storehouses. We're going to pour all that stuff in there, because the temple workers and all Levites and the whole nation, that is their salary. In other words, they don't have any land to grow grapes. They don't have any land to raise crops. They have no way of making a living. They live off the offerings from all the people. So if the people stop giving, they have no money. They have no food. They all die. Or they go get other jobs, and the whole temple shuts down. In other words, if the community did not do their job, worship would cease. Are we all following the implications here? The Levites receive all this in. They had to give a tenth of that to the priests. And so on, up to God. But it wasn't just that one tenth to the Levites. There was also a tenth every year they had to bring in to the temple for general feasts of Jerusalem. That was almost like an income tax. But then every three years they had to bring in another tenth for the widows, the orphans, the poor. It may have been in addition to the other two, so it's very possible that every three years they had three tithes that year. That's a lot. It was mandatory that they bring it in. It was not, I think I'm going to give 10%. It was, you will give 10% or you will be cursed. It's very clear. Because that was the agreement God had written down for them. So when he says, you're robbing me, he mentions it's in the area of tithes and offerings. What are offerings? Well, they're kind of above and beyond in many ways. That's how we kind of look at them is there's times when you wanted to give a free will offering to the Lord or give something. But the tithes were mandatory, mandatory for the nation of Israel. Look at verse nine. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. 
bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. You guys remember in chapter one, he blasted them for the type of sacrifices they were bringing. Do you guys remember that? What he was saying is what kind of animals were they bringing to offer? Remember the total Chernobyl animals? It's like, hey, two headed sheep or it's like the one legged cow hobbling in. Okay, they were giving all the blemished, blind, diseased, crippled animals. They were all the messed up animals and they were being brought in. They were not honoring to the Lord. And God said, I have a problem with your quality. But now what's the problem? Quantity. You may be bringing in something, but you're not bringing it all in. You're holding back on me and you're ripping me off. And I'm not okay with that. Quality matters. Quantity matters, he said. Why does God care about our money? God doesn't operate off cash. What does he care? If God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as the Bible says, then what does he care about my five bucks? Do you really think that God cares about the money? Or do you think God cares about your heart? All right, here's the deal. Money is a surrogate God. And here's why, very practically. God is supposed to provide security. What does money do? Provide security. God's supposed to prepare for your future. What does a retirement account do? It prepares for your future. God is supposed to be your escapism, the one you run to, but what does money buy you? Escapism and things to run to. So very simply put, money does a lot of what God does, right? So it's a matter of idolatry. It's a matter of putting another God in your life other than God, not relying on God, but putting your interest in money, something that you can control, at least you think you can in your mind. And so God is worried about our hearts. So from day one, he's always said, hey, kick some of that back to me. Why? It's mine, right? You little brat. Let go of it and give it to me. Because we'll slip into selfishness even without even knowing it. The Bible does not say that money is evil. Do you understand that? Money is a neutral. Money is not the problem. You're the problem. And I'm the problem. The root of all evil is the love of money, yeah? That's the problem. It's when we start placing it too high in value in our minds, when we get our priorities out of whack. That's when money becomes a problem. Have there been wealthy believers in Scripture? Better believe it. Did they get in trouble for being wealthy? No, they did not. Did they receive instruction about what they're to do with their wealth? Yes, they did. All right, then. John Piper in the book Desiring God said, God increases our yield so that by giving we can prove our yield is not our God. What is giving about? Proving that money doesn't rule us. Must we give today? Better believe it. Why? Because we'll be too messed up if we don't. All right, let's keep moving on. We now run into the passage that, as I mentioned to you, has launched bogus theology for thousands of years. Let's see if we can't sort it out. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Now, that's a pretty big deal because you're told in other passages, don't test God. He's saying, no, 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 test the system. Test the covenant that I set up. See if I won't hold up my side of the bargain. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. 
How's he going to do that? I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. And everyone said, woohoo. It's a formula. Sweet. Now I can totally control God. I can make him my slave boy. What I'll do is I'll use God like a CD and he'll give me this really good return on my money so that if I give him a bunch of money, he's already promised that if I give him a little bit of cash, he'll multiply it and kick it back to me. That's really cool. God is an amazing ATM machine. Is that what we just read? No, it's not. I got a real problem with a prosperity message because I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's biblical. What's God looking for? God's looking for obedience. This is not a money formula. As a matter of fact, in Second Chronicles 31, 2 through 12, you don't have to turn there. There's an exact story of people doing this right. It's what God's looking for. He's like, will you guys get it right? I need your hearts. I need your heads. I need you to get back in the game. And I'll take care of you. I will work out what I told you I would do. But what did we just read? Let me ask you a couple questions to sort this out. Number one, does God desire to bless his children? Yeah. Yeah, I think he does. Because you know what? That's what good daddies do, yeah? They bless their children. Okay, he desires to bless... But he's more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Would we all agree with that? If you are training your children for greater blessing, do you give them everything they want? No. If you've read the end of the story and backed up in your perspective, you begin to see that there is a huge time of blessing. It's called heaven. Heaven is defined as rest. Heaven is defined as a place of blessing. It's not here yet. This is prep time. When you're in training, do sometimes you get blessing? Yes. Are sometimes you disciplined? Yes. Do sometimes you just have horrible things go on? Yes. You look through and you go, but if God wants to bless us, we should always get stuff. Really? Have any of the prophets ever got that? No. How about Job? How did he do? Not so hot. Did he do anything wrong to deserve it? No, he sure didn't. This is prep time. This is growth time. This is get to know Jesus time. You want to talk about blessings, let's talk about heaven. When you back up in your perspective, it seems awfully clear. We're going to have a lot more blessing time than we're going to have prep time. Because one is called eternity, and the other one's called a really short life. Right? Why doesn't God deal with us like he does with Israel right there? Because he doesn't. I'll tell you that right now. He doesn't. Why? Israel was a very special nation. Still is. Very specific as a model for God in the world. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Israel is a visual demonstration of what God wants and does. They're a concrete, tangible example of the will of God. For example, Israel's a weird nation. Always has been. Why? Because God made them weird. Why? Because he's using them like a PowerPoint. He's trying to show the rest of the world spiritual truths 
in a tangible, concrete fashion. For example, animal sacrifices. Anybody find that creepy? Okay, yeah, I'm an animal lover. Don't like that idea at all. All right? Animal sacrifices, bloody, gnarly mess. All right? Not to mention animals aren't too happy about it either. Okay? Why did God institute animal sacrifice? It's a visual representation of a spiritual truth. The spiritual truth is what? When someone sins, someone dies. So when all the nations around them are looking at him going, dude, what are you doing with the dove? Why are you ripping his head off? Because I have to do that for my sins. Your what? My sins. What's that? That's when you violate God's law. I didn't know there was a God's law. Well, let me tell you about it. Well, why are you killing the bird? Because our sin, the wages of sin, are death. And God is trying to explain that someone dies when we sin and say no to God. Oh, okay. They even dressed weird. They had little things tied to their foreheads and everything else. And they had little things on their doorstops. Why? To talk about the law of God. They even on Sabbath, they'd shut down their whole nation for a day. All the nations around them are going, that's bad for business. And they're like, yeah, I know. Well, why are you doing it? Because God asked me to. Well, why did he do that? Because we needed to mellow out and realize that he would provide for us and we didn't have to become workaholics and we needed to have time of rest to reconnect with our God. Wow, that's pretty cool. I know. They are a visual representation, salt, light in the world, so that everyone would be able to see tangibly what God desired of man. Are we all tracking with this? All right. The way he spoke to the people, the way he spoke to mankind throughout the ages was through covenants. Covenants are agreements, contracts, where I would do something, you would do something. Sometimes I can just establish a covenant with you and I'm the only one that does anything. There are a few major covenants in Scripture. The first one that God ever set out with mankind was a one-way covenant, and that was with Noah. And he used the symbol of the rainbow to explain his covenant. What was his covenant? I will never wipe out all the people on the face of the earth by flood again, by worldwide flood. What does that mean? It means you guys are going to keep sinning, and in my righteous anger and justice... I should be killing you all the time. However, I'm more interested in your restoration than your destruction, so I'm going to withhold the punishment in anticipation of what Jesus is going to do. So I'm going to hold off, and I'll give you a rainbow to let you know that I will be patient with you. Now, God still punished sin here and there, but in general, he's let go an awful lot of sin. Are we all agreeing? Has there been a lot of sin throughout history? Yeah, absolutely. But God held back and restrained his anger. Does God still hate sin? Yeah, but he wasn't reacting off it the same way. Why? Because of his covenant with Noah. Then he had a covenant with Abraham. He said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Through you, I will bless all the nations of the world by making a special people for me. I will be there as your personal God. I will be near you in my presence and I will put you in the promised land and I will demonstrate to the world what I desire. And he made a chosen people. Then through Moses, he established more and began to reveal even more of his plan. He said, now through these laws and through these ordinances, I will explain you need to obey me so that I can be in your presence most powerfully. 
I will tell you about forgiveness. I'll tell you about holiness. And in order to do that, I'm going to set up a promise with you of blessings and curses. Keep your finger in Malachi and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26, page 134. You're going to go way back to the left. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. God is very clear on how this contract works. Deuteronomy 11:26, page 134. I don't think it could be more spelled out than we're about to read. Deuteronomy 11:26. See, God says, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I commanded you today by following other gods which you have not known. Okay, pretty clear? Blessing, curse. Let's get a little bit more detailed. Go to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28:12, page 144. Deuteronomy 28:12, page 144. He said, let me tell you what I mean by blessings and cursings. And this is going to sound an awful lot like Malachi. But this was written thousands of years before. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouses of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands, meaning if you're obedient. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all the commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city, cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed, the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you come in, cursed when you go out, curse, 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 curse. All right. Is that pretty clear? I mean, I don't think he was pulling one over on anybody. I think it's pretty obvious. It's kind of spelled it out there. I'll curse you. This is not our covenant today. We're under a new covenant. This is not our covenant. And everyone goes, well, I like that covenant. I want the blessings. I mean, I want to know that if I do things right for God, he'll make me super rich. Okay, it's not a salad bar. You don't pick and choose what you want. You want this covenant? Let's go all in. All right, if you have any sin in your life, he'll completely wipe you out and devastate you financially. Are we all cool with that? No, of course not. Everybody just likes the positive ones. So we all want to look in the back and go, oh, he'll heal our land. He'll be really good to us. He loves us. Everything's great. Hold on a second. Different covenant. See, after the Mosaic covenant, we got the covenant of David. And the covenant of David was with King David. And God said, I will send in a coming Messiah through your royal line. And he will do something amazing. Because at that time, God dealt with a nation through the king. He was the son of God for all practical purposes. In other words, God would, however the king went, the nation went. God would deal with the king directly. If the king was honoring and obedient to God, the nation would be blessed. If the king was disobedient, the nation would be cursed. And then Jesus rolls in with a brand new covenant. And he said, if you would come to me, I will give you the right to become sons and daughters of God individually. 
You will be forgiven of your sins. You'll be cleansed of all impurity. I will give you a new heart. You will live under a state of grace. And I will indwell you and lead you towards obedience. And it will become natural for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, which covenant do you want? Are we all tracking? It has always gone from basic fundamentals to more details. It has gone from an immaturity, childlike talk to more details and maturity. It has gone from the visual to the internal. Tithing was an external, obvious, I'll bless you financially, obviously everyone can see whether you're under blessing or curse. But just like the animal sacrifices, Jesus said, do you realize I never really wanted animal sacrifices? I just wanted you to get a point. What I really want is your heart. What I really wanted you to know is that Jesus, I'm going to die for you and die for your sins. And it's all about the internal. In the same way, you look in the New Testament and you go, where's the tithe thing? Where's tithe? Do you understand Jesus tithe? Yeah, he was in that old covenant. Then once he rolls out the new covenant, you all of a sudden start missing the word tithe in the New Testament. And you're like, well, where is it at? I mean, where's I'm supposed to get my 10 percent and then I'm supposed to get stuff. Right. Remember the ATM thing? It's not there. It's gone. And he said, no, no, no. That was the simplistic version. Now I want it all. Do you remember in the early church, they came and they brought all their money to the disciples feet and poured it all out. And they sold everything they had. They said, let's go. And Jesus said, that's what I desire. I want everything. I'm going to tell you right now something that you're not going to hear very often. We're not under a covenant that if you give your tithe, you're going to be blessed. You understand? This is not a matter of, because if you want to play that game, then if you don't give your tithe, you're going to be cursed. That is not the covenant we're running under. But I'll tell you right now today, I tithe. And I tithe because I have to start somewhere. Am I doing it because I'm afraid that God's going to curse me? No. Am I doing it to get a good return on my CD? No. I'm doing it because if I don't start somewhere, I know my heart and I'm not going to do anything. So I've picked up this tithing concept and carried it forward in my life, but I'm not doing it right. I'm super immature. Let me explain how immature I really am. I only tithe for two reasons. Number one, my wife writes the check. Not me. Number two, I tithe consistently because I pretend I don't own it. I pretend like I earn 10% less. I pretend that the money's not mine. I pretend that I never see it, never pay attention to it, don't expect it. Therefore, it doesn't hurt when it leaves my hands. Anybody see any problems with this? Is that sacrificial giving? No. It's mind games. You see what I'm saying? The only reason I'm consistent is because I had to trick myself. How's that honoring to God? My point in telling you all this is we all wrestle through and we're growing up in different areas. Do you see what I'm saying? And just because I tithe, does that mean why I'm being blessed? No. Does God desire to bless? Sure He does. But sometimes it's healthy to give us stuff and sometimes it's not. 
Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And Jesus said, wait till heaven, because that's not going to happen there. Our best life is not now. It's later. Carl Laney said, blessing is not defined through scripture as simply the material things God gives. The essence of blessing is having God present in a special way. Blessing is God's presence, not just his gifts. From Adam on, it is always clear that the believer's obedience was indispensable for enjoying the blessing of divine fellowship. You guys, the prosperity message has emerged from people with good hearts thinking that their daddy wants to bless them. Thinking of the old covenant and wishing that when they do good, they'll get a good return. It's a misread of passages like this. But do you see how this was an issue of obedience? Bring the tithe in because I told you to. It was not bring in money and I'll give you money. It was be obedient and I'll bless you. There's a big difference here. There may be passages in Scripture that talk more specifically about money. This is not one of those. This is a passage of obedience. I'll tell you right now, if you're not giving to the Lord, you're out of line. You go, well, you did that because you guys won't have a job if we don't give. You're only saying this message because you want money. You guys understand that our church has never been more financially blessed than this moment right now. I've got nothing, no concerns, no worries on that at all. This is about discipleship. This is about not letting something dominate your life. This is about breaking free. This is about not being in the bondage to your dollars. And we must follow him. What's the amount? I have no idea. Does it have to be a bridgeway? No, it does not. Are you guys following what I'm telling you here? God wants your whole heart. Don't allow this to be your God. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a refresher in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you would allow us to partner with you in ministry. Thank you that you would even whisper to us and tell us of the great things you're doing that we can join in with you about. Father, I know that if we've allowed tithing to get into a legalistic fashion, we're out of line. I know that. Lord, I just know that I'm too immature to do anything else right now. I pray right now that you would give us freedom from the bondage of money in our lives. That you would allow us to see what is greater, which was more noble, which is far surpassing simple dollars and cents. That we would crave you more than what your hand can provide. That we would run towards you in obedience. That we would run towards you with open hands. And that we wouldn't hold tight in the corner with everything clutched in our grip. May we be free with you in Jesus' name. Amen.